0: Hey y'all, and welcome to the Feasting on Truth podcast. I'm Erin Warren. This podcast is a companion teaching to the Feasting on Truth Bible study. And right now we are in a study called To Dwell in Our Midst, a study of the tabernacle and how it points us to Jesus. I'm so glad you're here we meet live on zoom on tuesday nights and it's not too late to join us you can go to feastingontruth.com bible study for more information as well as a link to purchase the study book this was our first full week of homework and we focused on the purpose of the tabernacle and the contributions how on earth were they able to build such a magnificent tent in the middle of the wilderness but we also Look to the New Testament to see what the who the true tent was. One quick note: there's a moment about 20 minutes in where the audio kind of breaks up. Sorry about that. Not really much I can do, but um, I hope that you enjoy week one of to dwell in our midst.
1: Welcome to officially week one of To Dwell in Our Myths, the study of the tabernacle and how it points us to Jesus. Last week was an introduction and kind of um, helped lay the groundwork for the study coming up um, with some context work. And tonight we're going to start really diving um, into a little bit more about the tabernacle, kind of building up that foundation. But before I do that, I want to pray um and uh just invite Jesus into this time. So Lord, we just thank you for your word. God, thank you for the tabernacle. Thank you for the picture that it gives us. Lord, I just pray first and foremost tonight, Lord, you be glorified that your name um be made great. Lord, that um I would share your truth that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, you are our rock. And you are our Redeemer, and the redemption that you offer us is better. Lord, thank you for the victory we have because of you. Tonight is yours, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. So, as I said, we're going to be talking a little bit more um, kind of context. Um, So, I want us to kind of remember that. in the introduction, we really talked about how the story of the Bible really, there's this theme and this thread throughout all of scripture that um, there is God has a desire to dwell with his people. And we see that from Eden, from Genesis, all the way to Revelation, where we see heaven and earth reunited again, where God dwells with his people. This, the Bible, the purpose of it is to tell us who God is and how we relate to him. Um, and we saw last week how that relationship was broken in the Garden of Eden, but how God is making a new way to dwell among his people in the tabernacle. They are in the middle of the wilderness. The Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt have left Egypt. They have come to Mount Sinai, um, and it's about three months into the wilderness journey, and they have... um, come to the mountain of God to Mount Sinai and God has spoken the 10 commandments to them. And while, um, the Moses, uh, goes further up the mountain, he spends 40 days and 40 nights with God. Um, and so, uh, last week we also talked about how the garden of Eden, um, and the tabernacle are very similar that the tabernacle really mirrors a lot of the aspects of the garden of Eden. Um, and, um, this really, I love the way that the Bible project really explains, um, this section of Exodus, they use two words to kind of describe this idea of restoration and access. And I think those two words, really, when we talk about a book that tells us who God is, um, he's a God who restores us and he redeems our relationship and then access that relationship to him. So God is birthing his nation here his chosen people in the book of Exodus um through which he will redeem the whole world and so in here he gives us this small picture of what he is going to do um and this week i really found myself and this is where i really want to kind of set up before we dive re- in deep um and i will admit the first time i studied this my focus was on the people and my focus was on what um, their skills were, their talents, what they brought um, and how amazing their gifts were. And, and really this kind of like, girl, like he has given you and equipped you to do big things for him and um, really focused more on the gifts and the talents than I did on the giver. And this time I really felt pressed to, to ask myself this question as I studied what kind of God elicits this type of response from the people? And so I want us to keep that at the forefront of our mind as we dive in. So we started this week in um, two scriptures in Exodus, in Exodus 13 and in Exodus 33. And that was really to kind of help us understand what, um, how God was meeting with the people and how he was with them. Um, We talked about last week again, how there's a difference between God's omnipresence and a, a relationship with him. So he was with them. And we saw that in Exodus 13, that he had led them, actually led them purposefully into the wilderness. Um, and if you, any of y'all have done my stories of the wilderness study, um, that study really dives deep into who God is in the wilderness. And we learned that God took them to the wilderness so that he could show them who he is. And so he purposefully leads them into the wilderness and we see that he is leading them along the way, um, by a pillar of cloud by day, he's going before them and, um, by a pillar of fire by night so that they can travel by day and by night. And then we read that the pillar, um, of cloud and the pillar of fire did not depart from the people. So he's going before them, his veiled presence. Remember, if you behold the unveiled presence of God, you would die. And so he is veiling his presence um, in the pillar of fire, in the pillar of cloud and going before them. And then we also see this story in Exodus 33, where Moses, who is writing the book of Exodus, kind of talks about how he would meet with God. He says that he would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from camp. So anytime that Moses was going to meet with God, he would... Um, have to go far off outside of camp in order for God to come meet with him. And we also see this, that people would rise up and they would worship at their tent. So they would remain at their own tent. So they were even worshiping him at a distance. And so these are both really important because, um, because God wanted to be in their midst. And when you see a map of the um, tribes and where they camped and where they put the tabernacle. The tabernacle was at the heart of the entire camp. So he was literally in the middle of camp and that is was his desire. Um, and we see in Exodus 33, um, where this is after the golden calf. I'm gonna talk about this a little bit more in just a few moments, but um, God says he's not going to go with them and, um, the people mourn. And so Moses goes and he says in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, 14, my, um, he begs, he says, Lord, let, um, you need to go with us, please go with us. And, um, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight. I, in your people. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So God's presence sets us apart. Um, And like I said, there's a difference between his omnipresence and him dwelling with us in relationship. And it is the relationship that we have with God that sets us apart from every other people on earth. Um, I mentioned the um, wilderness study. The theme verse for that study was Deuteronomy 2.7, where it says, the Lord knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord, your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Because he was with them, they had everything they need. This echoes Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Um, If you kind of dig deeper into some of the commentaries, that idea I shall not want, was that you have everything you need. You lack nothing when you have the shepherd with you. And what does the shepherd do? He guides and he leads and he takes care of his sheep. And that's what we see God doing here in the wilderness. Um, And we are going to see how he has this great relationship with him. So um, he's outside the camp, Now he's um, in Exodus 25, one through nine, y'all kind of dug into a little bit more of the purpose. And we see um, in verse eight, our theme verse for this study, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The whole purpose of the tabernacle is that God has a way to dwell in the midst of his people. This is God bending down to his people. This is his great grace. Um, his grace is more than just giving forgiveness. It's giving us himself that he could have stayed in heaven and said, y'all figure this out so that you can have a relationship with me. But instead he came near and he bent down and said, I want to dwell in your midst. So let make me a sanctuary. And he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. Um, So the Hebrew word for sanctuary is a holy temple or a holy place. Um, And I'm gonna give you a couple like rapid fire definitions here. So um, holy means set apart. So this is a place that is set apart um, from the world. And so this is a holy place that is set apart. Um, The word tabernacle, um, we mentioned this last week, but I wanna mention it again. Um, it means a dwelling place, and it carries this idea of residence and permanence. It's not a hotel you visit every now and then. It's not a vacation home. It's the place where he lived. Um, and, um, and to dwell means to abide, um, to continue. Um, it's, again, has that idea of permanent residence to stay somewhere for a long time. Um, so this is what God wants to, all of that put together. God wants to be in their midst. He wants to dwell there. He wants to live with them. He wants to have relationship with his people. Um, he wants to abide there. It's one of my favorite words in scripture. I love, love, love that word. Um, and so he's saying, here's how this is going to happen and do this exactly as I show you. Um, we see such explicit instructions. And when we see something like that in scripture, we should ask why there is a reason why he is so clear in how to make everything. And this points us to God's character. So these are these places where we're going to go. What does that tell us about God? So, um, when we see like exactly, I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all the furniture, you shall make it. Our first inclination is to think there's nothing about the character of God in there, but it's so deep. Our God is deliberate. Um, he is detailed. He is specific. He does not hide His will from us. Um, he tells us He is going to literally tell them, "This is how I want to have a relationship with you. This is how I want you to worship me. This is what um, this is what is going to characterize." our relationship. So he gave them the 10 commandments, um, but we know that we're not capable of keeping that in perfection. And so God is saying, I'm still going to make a way for us to have access for you to have access to me. Um, and it's not something we can shortcut. So there's this one thing, there are times where if you can, if you read large chunks of scripture in rapid fire, there's some things that sometimes you may pick up on, um, And so this is something I I read um, in commentary, was talking about, um, several commentators have talked about um, in Exodus 25 through 31, which is where we find God's instructions for the tabernacle. We see this phrase, the Lord said to Moses seven times, six times it's around the tabernacle and the seventh time it's um, a command about Sabbath. What does that sound like? it sounds like creation. And one of the really cool things about scripture, and it's something that we very often miss in our English language, is the pattern with which um, the Old Testament is written. Um, And this is a, um, you have to remember that it was passed down orally. So they would teach it to their kids, they would recite it and their kids would memorize it. And then their kids would teach their kids and their kids would teach their kids. That's why you see that so often in scripture about teaching your children, because if they didn't teach their children, then the word of God was lost Um, because they couldn't read. They didn't have copies of the Bible on their shelves. They didn't have phones with all the different versions on it. The only way they could do that. And so it is written, particularly these first five books, are written with with pattern and with repetition and with poetry and with um, things like this so that it makes it easier for them to remember. And so one of the things that we see throughout scripture, we see this also when they cross the Red Sea where you see it's a a creation type. Um, So you'll see a lot of parallels where the light and the dark are separated, where the waters are separated and there's dry ground in between. Um, all of those are point to creation. And so we see that here, we're going to see that here through the tabernacle, um, which again points us to Eden. God is creating a place where heaven will meet earth, where he will come and have relationship with his people. Um, and his tabernacle, his temple is different than, um, any other gods and any other temples. So one of the things that you would find in pagan temples would be things like a bed for the god to go to sleep. Well, God's tabernacle does not have a bed; he does not sleep, and so there are no images of God himself in the in his tabernacle. Whereas a um, another deity, they would have a statue of Artemis or a statue of Venus, or um, you know. And so those are ways that this is set apart. This is not going to be. a a temple or a tabernacle um, to a a God like any they've seen. So the purpose is that God will come and dwell with his people, that they will have restoration of their relationship and access. And so that always begs the question, um, we read in that um, Exodus 25 passage about all the things that they need. He says, take a contribution every man whose heart moves among him you shall receive a contribution and then he lists off all these things gold silver bronze blue and purple and scarlet yarn fine twine linen goat's hair tanned ram skin goat skin acacia wood oil for the lamp spices for the anointing oil fragrant incense onyx stones stones for the ephod and the breast piece and you're like where are they going to get this where did they get all of this really nice, expensive things. Um, and so in your study this week, you went back to um, Exodus 11 and 12 and saw how God told them to ask the Egyptians before they left for, they left Egypt for jewelry, for gold and silver, and how they left with very much livestock. They left Egypt with um, gold and jewelry, God gave them favor um, with the Egyptians. And so they left with exactly what they were going to need to build this. God had gone before them in that way. Um, We also see in Exodus 35, um, not only the need for materials but also for workers and craftsmen. And again, their time in Egypt would have prepared them for that. They were slaves, they were workers, they knew how to build. Um, these women, they knew how to sew and how to to do all of these things and to mix the spices and to make the oil and and all of that. So they not only provided the goods, but the Egyptian and their time in Egypt also helped provide them with their skills. And we saw this one in particular man named Bezalel who was chosen by God and especially equipped by God to oversee um, all and all of the um, the building and the artistry in the temple? Um, a lot of people point to Bezalel as the first artist in Scripture. Um, his name means "in the shadow or protection of God." Um, and we see this beautiful phrase, and this is special, y'all. Um, he was filled with the spirit of God. So on this side of the cross, that's not a foreign concept to us. You know, we're all, when we surrender our life to Jesus, he gives us the Holy Spirit as our helper. And so we have the Holy Spirit. But in the Old Testament, that was not the case across the board. And anytime um, God's spirit was on someone, and then very rarely it was in someone, someone was filled with and Bezalel is one who is filled with the Spirit, um, but it was a um, God. It meant that God was giving them an a special empowerment for a task that they had been called to do. And so we see God put a special empowerment through His Holy Spirit on Bezalel, so that he can carry out exactly what God has called them to do. He equips him to do what God has called him to do. Um, and he gives them an assistant named Oholiab, um, and I just love, just little fun side note, his name means father's tent, and he's the one who is um, chosen to assist in building his father's tent, his father's tabernacle, um, but I really want to focus in these passages on this repeated phrase. So when we're reading through our scripture um, inductively um, and we're reading through like this, we wanna kind of hone some attention on what we see he did. And so we see this phrase repeated about the heart. Um hurt stirred, a um, willing heart. His heart moved them um, In our English, we missed so they said, times the Hebrew word for heart is used. And heart isn't like your love or your passion. Hebrew, it's kind of like the inner part. It's in your thought, your understanding, your reason, your picture, your whole Kind of like center core who you are. And so we see um, generous, like some translations see will and heart as five. There's 10, it says every skillful craftsman the hear word actually translates wide, heart. So every wise, good, craftsman. Um, verse 21, whose heart heard whose spirit moved him. Um, that he word is carried away or to lift. Um, think of it like to rise, rise in action. Um, verse 22, one with a will heart. And 25, every skill woman and every skillful, the so wide hearted. Um, verse 26 the women who stirred 29 hearts moved them they all did this because um it was a free will offering it was voluntary they were not doing this because God had told them that um they weren't doing this just because like God commanded it and they weren't like oh I gotta like go give this to them. They were doing it voluntarily out of their hearts being stirred up at the very core of who they are. They were bringing this and notice the repetition of every. It's used 10 times. No one was exempt. Every person was was stirred like this. And this is where I think we can focus on man, these were great people. Like, I mean, I know they messed up sometimes, but look at it. I mean, they're bringing bringing gold and they're bringing all this costly stuff and they're laying it down and they're doing it with joyful hearts. And we can focus on Bezalel and going, man, God has equipped him to do great things for God. God's equipped us. We can do great things like Bezalel because we know that and can trust that God is gonna do this for us. But this is where I really want us to ask the question, what kind of God elicits that type of response? Who is this God that they would come willing and joyfully, every one of them, and lay down the most costly things? Y'all, if I will admit, if I had walked out of Egypt with all that gold and silver jewelry, I don't know that I'd be like, okay, here you go, God, Like, just take it all. But isn't that what he asks of us? Doesn't he ask us to lay it all down at his feet, to surrender all that we have? We have to remember the context. And this is sometimes, I'm going to talk a lot about context as we're going through um, this study. So this passage, when they take up the contributions, is after the Ten Commandments, and it's after the golden calf. These are people who saw God come down. He was described like a tempest, like thunder and fire and lightning descending. And his voice was like thunder and trumpeting um, across. And God spoke 10 words to them. And they were like, we're out. They're like, Moses, we're not, we cannot talk to him. You talk to him. And he tells them to, um, and Moses goes up. And while Moses is up the mountain, they grow weary. And they're like, we don't know what's happened to Moses. Aaron, make us a God. And they make this golden calf and they worship them. While Moses is getting these plans and he comes back down and in anger, he breaks the tablets and he grinds up the golden calf and he makes them drink it. And God says, uh, God sends a plague and many of them die. And God says, I'm not going to go with you. Like They literally, that ceremony of the Ten Commandments is likened to a Jewish wedding celebration. And they basically committed adultery at the wedding. And God said, I'm not going with you. And we see at the very beginning of chapter 33 that when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. God said, I will not go with you lest I consume you along the way because you are a stiff-necked people. He's like, look, if I go with you, then you're gonna die because you are stiff-necked and you will not follow me. And they, they mourn. They, it says they don't put on any of their ornaments, any of that gold and, jewel and silver jewelry. They don't put it on because it's a reminder of their sin and they beg Moses to go before God and ask for him to intervene on their behalf, to ask God's forgiveness and say, please go with us. And that verse that I read at the beginning where he says, how will the people know that we are distinct if you do not go with us? And God says, okay, I'll go with you. And the response of the people is what we just read. Their hearts were stirred. These are people who had been forgiven. They are people who recognized their sin and they are taking the things that had held them back and saying, Jesus, they're saying God, God, <laughs> they're yours. This is not about the goodness of people, but rather the goodness of God. When we catch a glimpse, when we see who God is in all of his power and all of his majesty and all of his greatness and all of his understanding and all of his bigness, and then we recognize that he is still willing, y'all, to go with us, to dwell in our midst, it should knock us to our knees and we should respond in worship. It should be the natural compelling of our very core that we would do whatever he asks of us, that we would follow wherever he goes, that we would give up whatever he asks us to give up because we have caught a glimpse of who he is. This is not a gift out of obligation, but a gift out of awe. And they had such a great response but in Exodus 36, 6, Moses calls for no further gifts because they had more than enough. He says, y'all have been generous. You have given more than enough. We don't need any more. We have what we need. So we see in the tabernacle, God's purpose, that he is going to dwell with his people, not merely omnipresent, but reside with them, to have a relationship with them. He provides material. He provides the skills. He gives them a creative leader to head it all up. And he gives a command, he says, do as I say, build this exactly as I say, because he is giving them something heavenly. Not just a recreation of what was in Eden, a place where heaven meets earth, but a picture of what was to come, Jesus, our true tent. We wrapped our week in Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 7. Now the point in what we are saying is this. They serve, a copy, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that I show you on this mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to spur on Jewish believers who were tempted to go back to the way things were. Um, They're facing intense persecution, not only from the government, but possibly from their own families. And they're going, is this even worth it? Is this even the truth? And the author of Hebrews writes saying, Jesus is better than the old way. And we know on this side of the cross that all of this points to Jesus, that the tabernacle points us to Jesus. But he is taking, the author of Hebrews is taking what was and saying, don't you see, this was a picture of Jesus The tabernacle, it was merely a shadow, is what he calls it. It's a copy of a heavenly pattern. But Jesus is not a shadow. Um, In the go deeper, in the extra kind of bonus work, at the end of this week, you kind of can get a glimpse into the priest. And um, this focuses mostly on their garments. But we're going to see the role of priests throughout each week. And what we see here is this first glimpse of Jesus as our high priest. Um, And we're going to see that over and over and over. Jesus was not a priest that had to offer sacrifices for himself first. He was not a priest who was imperfect and therefore had to cover his own sin first. Jesus was perfect, he was the the true high priest. And so um, he is not the shadow. He is the true tent. I love that um, verse two. He's the minister in the holy places. He is the true tent, the one that the Lord set up, not man. The tabernacle. Though it is um, is still imperfect because it was created by human hands. It might be a heavenly pattern, but it was created by human hands. And therefore, it was not enough. Hebrews 1, um, in the book of Hebrews actually opens with this beautiful, it's one of my favorite passages about Jesus in the Bible. It says in verses 1 through 4, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power, by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He is God himself come to earth in human flesh. The tabernacle is a copy and a shadow, but Jesus is not. Jesus is the real deal. In John 1:14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is God bending down to us. He is God's grace in human form. He is truth. He is not false. He is not um, that shadow. He is truth. And he is the glory of God in the the veiled presence of Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt we see again and here. It actually means it's Greek because it's in the New Testament and it means tabernacle. Jesus has become the true tabernacle by coming to dwell with us and opening the way. And there's this, this phrase that we saw in both the Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 8 passage. He sat down. Priests didn't get to sit. Priests always had work to do. There's millions of Jews. And as we're going to see in the coming week, as we kind of step into the first um, furnishing, the, the bronze altar on which they would offer sacrifices day and night, there was always work to be done. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's seated because it is finished. Matthew Henry says, we can never be thankful enough that God has in so many ways and with such increasing clearness spoken to us, fallen fallen sinners concerning salvation, that he should by himself cleanse us from our sins is a wonder of love beyond the utmost powers of admiration, gratitude, and praise. What he did for us is so much bigger than I think we may ever understand here on earth. He has spoken to us. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. The covenant that Jesus mediates on our behalf is better. He is the true tent, the more and better tabernacle. And because he came here, it is finished. That is the God that elicits the kind of response of worship. One who is long suffering with our sin. One who is merciful and gracious. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is true. He is deliberate. He is orderly. He is specific. He is not a God of chaos. He is victorious, holy, faithful creator. Jesus is better. Will you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for the covenant that you Mediate on our behalf. Lord, the one that is better, the one that is complete, the one that is final, the one that um, does not have to be offered again and again and again and again and again. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for bowing to um, bending low, Lord, and humbling yourself. God, I will never understand. <laughs> I will never get why you love us so much. But Lord, I just humbly thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a God who comes to dwell in the midst of us. One who desires to be in relationship with his people. Thank you for the access that we have and the restoration that we get to experience because of Jesus, our true tent. It's in your name I pray, amen.
0: Hebrews 11, and 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 talk about the prophets and the faith of those who lived before Jesus. Those who knew a time was coming when God would bring restoration through a Savior. It talks about their longing to see that day. How they only saw them from a distance and they longed to be where we are now. This living in this place of redemption where God dwells in and among us because of the blood of the true tent, Jesus. We get to experience the presence of God with us every day. What a joy and a privilege it is to live on this side of the cross. This week, we will begin studying each of the furnishings in the tabernacle, starting with the bronze altar. And y'all, I'm gonna warn you, this week is really hard to read. But instead of bowing out in the hard, I encourage you to press in and endure through these difficult passages. I think this week, more than any other, taught me the weight of my own sin. It's not something that we like to admit, but remember, we are living in this place of victory. He is seated at the right hand of God. It is finished. But our sin cost Jesus greatly. And I am humbled and so thankful and grateful that he came here and did for me what the blood of bulls and goats could not do. I'll see you next week.